My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. So, so you're basically like, like probably like 50% of mothers out there could go to space right now, like they're ready for it. Oh, totally. <laughs> I think some moms are super moms and uh, you have to be a super mom to be an astronaut as well, I think. <laughs> If you've wanted yet feared to do work that is weird, this is the show you just need to hear. E.O. Whiteley grew up in Latvia, formerly the USSR. As a kid, she'd always dreamed of flying and becoming a cosmonaut. But here's the catch. At the time, the USSR wouldn't allow women to become pilots. Ia, however, was undeterred. She took her other fascination with how people's minds and behaviors worked in high-stress situations to eventually become a space psychologist. Today, Ia mentally prepares astronauts for traveling and working in the final frontier of space. You might have even seen her recently as one of the experts on BBC Two's reality TV show, Astronauts. Do you have what it takes? Ia tells me all the secrets behind space psychology and how she's using her current work to train the youngest minds to become whatever they want to be. And yes, especially young women dreaming of becoming pilots. I'm your host, Sam Balter, and this is Weird Work. Now let's listen to them speak about their jobs, which are quite unique. Weird Work. Do you remember the first time you wanted to become an astronaut? I remember looking out the window and seeing Orion constellation. I was fascinated by, you know, this stationary stars that seemed stationary, but they would move throughout the night and I would wake up to just to see where it is. <laughs> and um, it was kind of mesmerizing, but also calming, you know, that it was always there, that it's one constant thing that would remain. And I was living in USSR, in the Republic of Latvia, which is the capital city, Riga. And in my mind, it was cosmonaut, because I was born in USSR. And I didn't know who are astronauts. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I was more interested to know on what it feels like to fly, and was interested to know what goes through people's mind when they need to do something extreme or they make the right split-second decision. That's what I was interested to do. So I put myself through 
extreme situations. Such as? <laughs> Jump with a parachute. <laughs> okay. Um, do lots of martial arts. Okay. And um, dive. I used to do diving. I did a lot of trampoline. But I was really interested to see what drives people to do extreme things and how do they make decisions in extreme environment. So I think that combination about fascination of unreachable, in a way, what seemed like unreachable, like going to other stars, but also how do you prepare for it? What mindset you have to be? What skills do you have to have? how would you react in a situation that you've never been and make the right decision to survive, to succeed, to help, to thrive? Did you ever think about getting into like flight and just being like a uh, a pilot or something along those lines? Yes. At the time, the military in Latvia was not accepting women. So that kind of went out the window. So I thought, well, that's fine. I drew other things. And uh, uh, I did get my private pilot license soon after. So <laughs> that was not an issue as soon as I been able to earn money. I was able to pay through the lessons. <laughs> so you, there was no stopping you getting into the air one way no. or another. No. <laughs> so then- no, as soon as I could put the signature down um, and um, I didn't need parents' permission, <laughs> I did everything I needed to do. <laughs> So, so okay, so how did you end up getting into space psychology? That was the second part of my interest uh, about how people make decisions in extreme environment. So I thought if I can't do it myself, I'll learn the inside out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought I will do as much as I can myself, try and understand what needs to happen, what you need to learn, what concepts you need to know, what the terminology is in the industry. And um, the closest I could do is uh, do psychology because that was where you could study cognition. You can understand how people process thinking, where the intuition comes into it, how it comes into it. Is there intuition? Is it just professional experience? All these questions seemed like would be answered in psychology. Is there a particular branch of psychology or something that is particularly fitting for people who are interested in space psychology? Yes. The advice that was given to me, and I think I would pass it on to others, is to take the broadest subject, the most um, inclusive subject, which is clinical psychology, which allows you then make a decision. Once you are qualified clinical psychologist, you can do research, you could do counseling, you could um, go into medical field. You could equally do occupational psychology. You can do ergonomics. You could do anything you like. So the paths are not, you're not bound by your master's degree. And you can go on into doing PhD either in clinical psychology or any topic you choose. So how do you make that jump? from clinical psychology into working in the space industry? I chose my PhD topic to be in the area of um, supporting designing displays for critical decision-making. 
and time critical environments. Okay. That was before 9-11. And I was already working for Emirates Airlines as the psychologist selecting crew um, and uh, pilots in higher management. I was allowed to fly in the cockpit everywhere we flew. And um, I was allowed to take a course in uh, Airbus 320 and Boeing 777 as a pilot because I already had pilot license. Yeah. But I did not sit the exams because I did. I needed to have simulator hours and, well, I should have chosen the profession of a commercial pilot to do that. <laughs> but nevertheless, that background or that knowledge gave me the understanding and the terminology when I went on to do my research of how they process information during the entire flight that kind of given me a common language and also that I wasn't um, a newbie, you know, like a person who doesn't know. Yeah. So I was treated professionally as well with the professionals that I was working as a knowledgeable person. And I think that's important. So how many astronauts and cosmonauts have you worked with personally? Probably directly, you can probably count them on fingers. Yeah. <laughs> because I work usually closely to an individual, whether we are working on developing specific te technology for exploration or missions to Moon and Mars. So we're developing a specific tool or technology or testing one. Or I would be directly working, uh, helping in training. That would also be one on one. Uh, I've developed training for Team Speak selection, which is the European astronauts that now all of them flown in space. So it's not a massive, you know, population. <laughs> well, there's not a, there's not a huge population of people who have been to space or work in the space industry either. <laughs> yeah, but it's um, my generation, so it's the people that I can relate to. That can relate to me. We have similar mentality and appreciation, I guess, of how fast things happen and what needs to be done. It's important to relate to the people you work with and they can relate and trust you. What are some of the important characteristics that astronauts need to have? Currently, astronauts have to be very adaptive. They have to sleep in and out of a role from being a follower to being a leader it's not anymore like I'm the commander of this spacecraft and everyone have to follow suit and what I say. Mm -hmm. It's more about today I'm the commander of the International Space Station and although you have been the commander or you perhaps have more experience, someone has to make a decision and you have to be assertive as the follower or, for example, someone who might know the systems better than the commander but ultimately someone on that spaceship has to make a decision and that would be the commander. Similarly, the cosmonauts and astronauts have to be very aware and uh, working in the international teams. But on the other hand, they have to also be able to perform solitary work. There is a lot of determination to work alone, persisting at what you do. Uh, it might be boring, <laughs> but eventually it brings to a success and a conclusion. And so the the actual process, people should find it rewarding. <laughs> I, I feel like the profile of person you're looking for is so bizarre because you just named like several opposing things that the person needs to have. 
right? Like they yeah. need to be they need to be a decisive leader and a decisive follower. They need to be able to switch between those really, really quickly. Um, yeah. And they need to be able to work together with a team and be comfortable working in total solidarity for long periods of time. Yes, unfortunately, that's the current working environment <laughs> that we have. So there's not a lot of people who make this, who make mm. it through all of these things, right? Yeah, it's a smooth trans- transition and you need to be just comfortable with that. Or people would put up with you, but only for one mission. <laughs> Is that all you got? Like people only need to be able to tolerate you for about one mission and then you're done? <laughs> well, it, it happens like that too, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, it, it's a tough job, you know. It's um, you either make the cut or you adapt. So, what are what are some of the common psychological problems that you see people having in space? I think the most challenging thing is that when people have become astronauts, they either just begun the family, such as that you know they just had kids, or they have to balance that kind of family professional life balance. They have to find it. Becoming an astronaut is not a single person's job. It's generally a family supporting everything because they move with the astronaut, be it a mom or a dad, mm-hmm. and um, they have to change priorities in life. This often people pursue for several years for several selections. So they could be attempting, you know, over 10 years to become an astronaut and then succeeding in everything has been on hold and now goes full power ahead. And they don't know where they're going to live in the next five years. They will be moving yearly. So it's, it's not a simple thing. So, and I think that stress sometimes takes over. So that's a hard balance. And, I wonder, what are some of the tests that you give astronauts, that you give cosmonauts to kind of test uh, their cognitive processes or their ability to handle the stress in space? You know, it could be as simple as constructing a tower out of paper clips and paper. And um, Wait, is just... that something that you have people do? Yes. So you have like these like badass, best of the best psychologically people and you're like, build me a tower as a team out of paper clips? Yes. <laughs> and that's what's um, deceiving. It seems like a simple task and you can crack it. But how you work it as a team, um, I throw in some tricks that they don't expect along the way. Like what? Um, for example, they're not able to speak at some point. They have to communicate non-verbally. They... Um, there's a competing element with other teams, so they're not doing it alone. Um, they don't know where they are, how they're judged, what they're judged on. It all puts on additional pressure. And um, you can see what the priorities reveal in people. And I look for nonverbal behavior as much as how they interact, what you can actually physically and visually see. I also see beyond that on their disappointment or trying to be the commander when it's not necessary and things are progressing well anyway. So it's seeing that fluidity of them changing and being able to adapt. <laughs> I I just really 
love that you're like almost like a torturous psychologist in some way giving these simple <laughs> tests and then, and then just throwing in random things throughout to make it more painful and more awful. Well, you don't have to, you know, for example, if you put people in a situation where they have to, the room is flooding, let's say, yeah, and people have to find the way out or something like that, and they're wearing suits and you can't see their face, they're exhausted. Um, it is a test, but it's not the test that you are able to see how they handle the situation. Like, obviously, one thing I just got to ask about is, is gravity. Right. Big difference between gravity on Earth, no gravity in space. How does that affect the training and the psychology from your end? Like we can't read emotions upside down. If I, if you're upside down. Yeah. And I'm looking at you, I won't be able to read your emotions. You are likely to misread it. Yes. Huh. So once we turn about 45 degrees towards each other. Uh, you stop reading emotion when people turn 45 degrees their face. Um, and when you go completely upside down, um, there are plenty of examples online that you could see the photographs where you think people are smiling, but in fact, they're quite scull- sculling or, you know, they're showing you <laughs> not a nice face. It seems fine when it's upside down, but once you turn it around, um, it it's not doesn't look normal. So there is a agreement shall we say, that when you speak to someone on, on in space, you speak with them in the same vertical plane. <laughs> that's that's just general, polite space conduct? Yes. Yeah, okay. So there's there's little bits of space politeness. It, I, like, it just, one, it makes me think I should, if I'm ever, like, playing poker or something like that, I should just tilt my head, like, 45 degrees to confuse people. Yeah, just say I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what are some of the changes that you've seen in the practice of space psychology since you started? I think the generation of astronauts has changed and what we will be selecting for future missions is changing. So currently people who operate on ISS, they, um, most um, frequent missions is science and maintenance. So you either execute scientific experiments or you are repairing a station. It's a house, you know, it's a house that needs maintenance. Yeah, it's an expensive house. Yeah, and uh, you you have to look after it so it looks after you. And so that's a majority of their time actually spend in doing that. And um, in the future, all the responsibility, once we go beyond Earth orbit, will be on astronauts actually running a mission at the at the moment mission is run by the mission control on the ground they have more power in terms of mind power processing power uh, expertise mm. and so on but as soon as we move away even to the moon there is a delay in communication and once you go to mars you could ask a question it will take 20 minutes to reach earth and then 20 minutes to be sent back with a response and they didn't have time to think what to answer. So you might ask a question and you get an answer an hour later and that might not be complete either. And in the first place, they would say, what did you say? Say it again. You know, and that's the whole conversation you could have in two hours. Is communication to the space station now instant? Yes. You can have a Skype conversation. Oh, 
Okay, so it's just like I, you could just call Space Station easy enough. There's no significant delay. In Earth terms, going across U.S., it will be much further, you know, than going up to ISS. It takes only eight minutes to come down from ISS. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fast eight minutes, though. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> You'd be falling <laughs> like a brick. So... Uh, one of the things I'm curious about is you were one of the hosts on BBC Two's Astronauts. Do you have what it takes? Yes. Could you just describe that show to somebody who has never seen it before? I think it's first of a kind where people who would like to apply to become astronauts have to have the right CV and the right experience come to apply to actually be on the program. They are selected with the same scrutiny as the astronaut candidates would be. So these people who are professional, some of them very successful surgeons, highly professional um, uh, researchers, medical doctors, and people who are um, uh, explorers and uh, work in extreme environments applied, and they would be the right people to go for an astronaut um, selection and all the feedback that's given to them hopefully will help them in the next selection or in their professional career. And what's something that you learned working with all of these untrained contestants on the show? I think a lot of professions don't realize they can apply to become an astronaut. The person just have to be fully rounded and be a very good learner. They have to be able to pick up skills quickly. They have to be well-rounded in terms of social skills and um, emotional intelligence. Do you think you have what it takes to go to space? Oh, yeah. No question. Absolutely. Oh, right. <laughs> are, are, you, are you in training to go to space? Well, I have applied for the European selection. The team was selected. Yeah. And um, I was... Uh, my application was returned because I'm a psychologist. Oh, really? Wait, what do you mean? Well, it's the narrowness, I think, of the expectations. I do have, you know, PhD in computer science. and um, Wait, you also have a PhD in computer science? Yes. I mean, that was my final degree where I did um, cockpit design. Aircraft cockpit design. So let me let me just make sure I get this. In addition to, like... You grew up in Latvia, did all of these extreme sports, immediately got out when you could. You learned to fly planes. You also got certified to fly Boeings. You just didn't have the hours for it. You also have uh, a degree in clinical psychology and a PhD in computer science. Yes. Yeah, I'm oh. also a rescue scuba diver. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's so much stuff. It's you will find that most of um, astronauts and cosmonauts will have pretty much the same spread. And I'm probably substandard. They were probably very good at a lot of sports and they would speak several languages. <laughs> they would probably have um, a science degree, an engineering degree as well. Oh, my God. It's, okay, so you, if, if they call you up and they're like, are you interested? You're ready to go tomorrow. Yeah, I would. I would. I You know, I'd still have to pass all the tests and... Um, knowing the tests, it doesn't mean you'll pass the tests. It's also you're always compared to people that are in your selection. So 
you know, you could be in a year that, you know, people are of the same level as you are. You could be in a selection that, you know, people are just so well prepared and you're just totally out of your league. So it just will depend on the year as well that you apply. So you've been working in uh, the space industry for a while in aviation. It seems like you found your way into children's books and games. And yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I was, can you explain how you made that job? I, I, oh, I frequently thought, you know, the ultimate test for this folk who want to be astronauts and don't have the family is to just leave them for a, I don't know, an hour with uh, about 10 children <laughs> <laughs> and uh, make them, you know, teach them something, you know, they have to teach them a particular task and they're just thrown in. I think that'd be a good test too. <laughs> so just so just a bunch of kids that they've never met before and then you just toss them in and go teach these kids something? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good test as well. <laughs> and um, uh, and then, you know, on top of that, you will be sleep deprived for about a month or so. <laughs> Probably never had a hot cup of tea or coffee for probably also a month because by the time you get to it, it's always cold or it's been spilled or so on. <laughs> so, so you're basically like, like probably like 50% of mothers out there could go to space right now. Like they're ready for it. Oh, totally. <laughs> I think some moms are super moms and uh, you have to be a super mom to be an astronaut as well. I think. <laughs> and um, when we had our son, I knew that black and white pictures, which is high contrast would be a, absolute treasure for a newborn baby because they can only see in contrast they can't see color yet and it helps them to focus on something and any type of focus improves uh, attention and concentration and hence future learning so you know if you have concentration and attention you can pick up on information and when i bought the best reviewed book on amazon uh, i Bought it, looked at it and said, I'm not showing this to my son. I'm embarrassed for earthlings. <laughs> you're just, yeah, I like also, you're just now embarrassed for the entire earth. Yeah, I just think, you know, what are we thinking? You know, do we think that these children, these little babies who can differentiate emotion by when they're one month old, we expect that they can only look at an outline of a a cat or a duck or a rabbit, you know, and there's, this is the best they can do. And in fact, babies can differentiate the intensity of a smile very quickly. So they can gauge their behavior and reactions and requests. And we think they can, you know, process only this basic information. So I, I thought, well, you know, I designed spacecrafts, I designed training, I designed cockpits for effective visual perception and yeah. absorption of information. You know, I designed for astronauts. I could design for babies. <laughs> I also love how not only are moms ready to be astronauts, but also like design for astronauts is the same as design for babies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, you are, when you're designing visual systems, you need to understand the perceptual system you're designing for. So I design understand perceptual systems, but I just didn't know how babies process information. So with these children's books and games, 
Are you helping to prepare the next generation of astronauts and space scientists and space explorers? Yes. We know that appreciation of art and pattern calms people, relaxes people. And for these babies, it might have an effect. You know, they might be able in the future absorb information better. They might perceive things in a different way because they've paid attention to a particular design. I didn't expect to be in this area. Yeah, this seems like a total curveball from the rest of the stuff you're doing because it's not life or death and horrifying, you know? (laughs) I think we're ready for this as a generation. You know, we people do try all sorts of techniques like um, early reading for children and, um, you know, making babies intelligent. But it's really about developing attention and concentration and preparing them for learning. It's not about stuffing them with information or start them, make them read earlier or count earlier. It's not about that. It's about being, learning to be observant. It's a generation that needs to be very quick in uptake of information, very quick to process information, notice the detail. And I think that's what these books do, both for adults and children. So I have an argument that I would, I would like your help. There's no right answer, but I was in this argument with my wife, and I'm not going to tell you which side of the argument I'm on, but we were talking about the one-way ticket to Mars. Would we fly to Mars, and then one of us said no, and it was like we, 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 it could have broken us apart because the other one of us wanted to go really bad. Now, my question to you is like for a one-way ticket to Mars, would you take it? Mm, I would not go one way to Mars. Really? You were ready to go up into the moon like next day. Yeah, I want to come back and tell <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, it's in selection. Yeah, That's one of the questions I ask sometimes um, or variations of exactly what you've asked. And depending how the person answers the question, it tells me how realistic they are and their expectations are. So the answer to that question will tell me a lot, actually, of where they are in the stage in their life. So what if they said yes? I would probe I would probe deeper. Why are they trying to escape Earth? Okay, this is good to know. So you would be worried if it was a straight yes. I think it's not straightforward. Hmm. That makes two of us. I was on the side that I would not want to go to Mars. And she was like, we should definitely go to Mars. And like in my mind, I, I was thinking that like Mars would just be like living in Arizona or like Nevada or something in like a tiny motel room. Like it would be terrible. (laughs) Um, Some people explore in the mind. And um, so, (laughs) and um, you, they could be quite happy, you know, they will go far and wide uh, and the room that they're in wouldn't matter. Well, thank you so much for being (laughs) on the podcast. I really appreciate you coming out and taking the time to talk to me. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Equally so. Much appreciate the questions and I love the humor. (laughs) Holy shit. We're approaching the end of the year already. Before we crack open 2018, we have one quick question for you. 
Which episode of Weird Work has been your favorite so far? Send us some holiday cheer by letting us know at hello at weirdworkpodcast.com or shoot us a message on Facebook or Twitter at Weird Work. Let us know which episodes you dug the most and we'll see you next week. Okay, thanks. Bye. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.